Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Phil Rogers. Phil is the national baseball writer for MLB.com and a longtime Hall of Fame voter. You can give Phil a follow on Twitter at PhilGRogers. Phil, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for asking me on, Ross. Phil, well, let's start at the beginning, I guess. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. Well, I, I mean, I, I loved playing it as a kid. I, I loved watching it as a kid. I grew up in Texas. Um, was in my teenage years when the Texas Rangers were wise enough to move from Washington, although it helped that Bob Short had gone broke in Washington and uh, was just looking for a, a new market. But uh, when Major League Baseball rolled in to Texas and Dallas area in 1972, I, I was on that bandwagon, was out there, and uh, one of my favorite memories of that time was the David Clyde game. His debut in 1973 was uh, my family and I all uh, loaded into the car, headed out. My dad got us to the game on time, even though we had a fender bender in the uh, uh, bumper-to-bumper traffic that that game started. It was really the 1972 season, the Rangers first, was kind of a big nah. But when Clyde got there in 73, uh, the party was starting, and it was, uh, you know, it, it was fun to have a baseball team close. And, you know, I just, um, my baseball, my favorite sport, my writing was the one thing I've, I've always enjoyed doing. So to have a chance to write and for it to be on the subject of baseball has just been sort of a, a wonderful life for me for 30-some years that I've been doing it professionally. Phil, we're going to do a lot of Hall of Fame talk today, but before we get into that, I know you've been covering the Tanaka posting story all winter. Uh, news broke earlier this morning that his Japanese team will likely not be posting him. What are your thoughts on that? Well, Ross, um, I think as we sit here this morning, that's a little bit premature. I think we're kind of jumping the shark and reaching that conclusion. I, I think that the Japanese team, uh, Rocketing, is going to uh, offer him a contract and try to make him uh, satisfied with staying in Japan, but I, I think um, Tanaka will still have a lot of influence on the situation. If if he uh, declines the offer and it, it makes it clear that he would stay only if he was forced to stay, which certainly the, the Golden Eagles do control his fate. It's up to them whether they post him or not, but I don't think they would do that against his will. So let's hold off and see how Tanaka reacts uh, to what uh, some reports would be doubling his salary, would be a, a record salary for a Japanese player, uh, but yet not the same uh, probably level of salary he could get moving to the major leagues. And, you know, ultimately, too, I think the challenge of pitching in the major leagues is, is big for the guys that have been the best players in Japan. I think that's why we saw Ichiro Suzuki come. Uh, to the major leagues. I think it's why we saw you Darvish come to the major leagues. And so ultimately, I think it's the challenge, not the money, that Tanaka is seeking. Uh, and, you know, if, if he tells his team, you know, thanks but no thanks, I still really want to go, you know, to North America and play as a professional, you know, I, I think he, I think we could see this story take another twist. This is the first year now under a new agreement of the posting system between Major League Baseball and the Japanese clubs. Um, we saw posting fees with, with Darvish going to $50 million and Daisuke with a similar number. The cap now on that posting limit is $20 million. Why would the Japanese owners agree to that at all? I think they felt like it, it was uh, 
better than nothing. And I, I think there was a strong push from a lot of clubs in Major League Baseball to do away with the posting system entirely and just be a little more patient and wait. You know, you can be posted after seven years, free agent after nine years. So if Major League Baseball decided, well, we'll just wait for the nine years when the players can determine their their fate. I mean, we, we saw very quietly this week a, a guy that had been a significant pitcher in Japan. Interesting to me for another reason, but Shinsuke Watabe uh, left the Chiba Marines to sign a minor league contract with the Red Sox. Well, he was a free agent, so no no big deal, and it's actually a minor league contract because he's 37. Uh, but if you haven't seen him pitch, you've got to you, go, go on YouTube and look up uh, Shinsuke Watambi. He's a submariner, but he actually basically throws the ball from the ground. <laughs> the, the release point is uh, two inches above the ground, and it, it is something something to watch this guy pitch. But I bring him up because he's a free agent. These free agents kind of come and go all the time. And if Major League Baseball decided to just uh, pass up two more years uh, of uh, service time, you know, they could do away with the posting system entirely. Well, let's shift off of the posting system and over to the Hall of Fame. I guess before we can fully get into the Hall of Fame, we need to talk a bit about steroids and PEDs. When did you first realize that steroids and PEDs were coming into the game? Uh, Bobby Valentine managed the Texas Rangers from 1986 until 91, maybe 93 at the latest. And with Valentine as the manager of the Texas Rangers, uh, I do recall having discussions about steroids and sports. And Valentine, I do recall saying from that era um, something that that um, you know just was like a bell going off in my head. You know, where he said the worst thing about about steroids as as they apply to baseball is they work. Um, and so that was you know, a, a good decade really before the story became what it what it did with Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire and, and others. So, you know, i I I you know, I am I kind of see it both sides. Uh there was some knowledge that there was use uh, in players, by players, but I don't think really in that era, I don't think anybody knew uh, how prevalent the usage had become um, really, uh, you know, uh, until we got beyond the fact and we started to have federal attention placed on it. We started to have guys uh, being subpoenaed and, you know, the, the Balco story, I think, was a, was an eye-opener, even though those of us who had covered the sport you know, certainly knew there were some steroid guys. I, I really don't think there was this widespread knowledge that that use was so commonplace. How do you think baseball writers in general handled the issue as it was happening? I think it was a nightmare. Um, I can recall almost getting in a fist fight with my own brother uh, one night um, about baseball writers somehow being complicit in the in the use this policeman capacity that people seem to feel that baseball writers were supposed to have and this uh, incredible base of knowledge. I don't know how we were supposed to glean that because, um, you know, players, every, every player that was using PEDs did it um, secretively. And I think they did it that way because they, they knew they were cheating 
And, you know, not, not necessarily unlike, although actually guys would do this other thing more publicly. I've seen people be, players be unfaithful to their wives uh, in a hotel bar, in a team bar. To me, it's similar. Like, I mean, should a baseball writer know which, which players had good marriages and which players had bad marriages? You know, anecdotally, you might have suspicions, but, I mean, it's private life. And I think guys training at least in regards to what they were doing chemically with their body was similar to that. So I think it was, I think it really put baseball writers or has put baseball writers in a, uh, a horrible position. Ethically, do you see a difference between the players of the nineties and early two thousands when steroid use seemed to be at its peak? Do you see a difference between them who used steroids and the players of the forties and the fifties and sixties who used amphetamines when amphetamine use was seemed to be at its peak? You know, I I don't see amphetamine use as as bad and I'm not exactly sure that I can draw the line on, on why that is. I don't know that you know, that, that I, I, I'm not convinced that amphetamine use had had that much benefit, and perhaps that was because the use was so widespread. But I, I'll say this: that wasn't those that wasn't being done in that era. Although I did not cover it, you know, I wasn't covering baseball in the '60s. But you know, I certainly have heard stories of the teams that had the big jar of greenies in the clubhouse, and players would grab them, they would use them. Other players would know who who was using them. So. Ethically, I don't think it carried the same weight because players certainly didn't hide their use from other players. And in fact, you would hear the stories, um, you know, when I started covering, you'd hear stories about players yelling at other players for not using greenies. Like, you know, tough night last night, you got a greenie up. You know, I, I never heard that same kind of talk. Matter of fact, I never really heard any talk about PEDs in that same use. So I know from the player's standpoint, it was seen as at a, at a different level. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing to me because I feel like the intent behind taking amphetamines or steroids is the same. I mean, they have different effects on your body, but I think the idea behind taking a drug to increase performance is the same regardless of the effects of the drug. However, I think what makes it a little bit different is that I do think that the players who were using steroids, especially players who were using after the Ben Johnson scandal broke in the late 80s, knew they were doing something wrong, whereas I'm not convinced the players who were using amphetamines in the 60s thought anything of it. It was much more of an open culture. The difference I would draw, and you know, I would say amphetamines, greenies, speed, much bigger issue for long, long-term long truck drivers than for athletes. Somebody that has to do, uh, you know, a job under, you know, difficult trying conditions. You want that extra energy. You want as much adrenaline, whether it's to stay awake through the night, you know, driving across the country. Um, I, think guys, I think guys would do greenies to kind of perform at their level when they were feeling worn out, worn down. Um, you know, another thing in on Major League Baseball, in the time I've covered it, there's no question that players in the 80s, when I first started covering to now, got less sleep at night, drank more beer after games. I mean, that culture's totally shifted, too. So we had a, a, an era when players would be out until the last bar closed, plus you know, however much, however long they could talk the the guys to keep the bar open, 
and wouldn't get much sleep, and they would compensate with greenies, I think, to perform at the level that they feel like they should perform. And I think the, the PEDs offered guys a chance to make themselves better than they would be normally. So I, I think that, that that's a difference, I think, from, from how players view uh, PEDs versus, you know, the greenies and the amphetamines. It's an odd thing, though, because the, the basic premise behind why I think that as a culture we're opposed to steroid use is because it's making your body do things that it otherwise wouldn't be capable of. What about LASIK surgery? What about Tommy John? And I wonder if it's like, you know, I'm a non-drug user. I, I've never used drugs. I'm not a part of drug culture at all. But I wonder if part of the uh, negative reaction to steroids is simply that it's a drug. Well, I, I'm I'm sure it, that's probably true, you know, that and uh, the way it has been, you know, I mean, you can, you know, it's it's illegal. And I, I have had the argument with people that before testing, you know, steroids, it was okay to take steroids. Uh, no, it really wasn't unless you have a prescription from a doctor. I mean, it was always against baseball's rules because it was, um, you know, a violation, a, a substance abuse violation to take to take without prescription. But if you, you know, if you had a doctor telling you you needed it, then it was always good. But none of these guys did. Um, so I, I, I don't know. Um, you know, back to the question. You know, versus LASIK surgery or other, you know, all the other uh, other things you would suggest, I think, would be controlled by doctors. Now, could there be corrupt doctors? Sure, but there's standards. And, and I think the fact, I think that the Gold's Gym stereotype with PEDs that you were buying them out of a van behind a, a weightlifting facility, you know, certainly contributes, contributed to the bad reputation that that they got. And, you know, I, I, I know there are there are people out there, Jose Canseco being the loudest, who, who thinks, you know, because of the anti-aging and other benefits, that we all should be taking some, some form of steroids. But, you know, we, we look to, you know, the FDA and, and our doctors to control that kind of stuff, and they've drawn the line at, you know, usage, you know, that would not include how it, how it would, you know, was used by the baseball players who gained weight, gained energy, gained quickness, and gained, I think most importantly, a psychological placebo advantage by thinking they were going to be superhuman if they took their PEDs. Phil, tell me about your voting philosophy. What are the things that you look at and consider to determine if a player should be in or out of the Hall of Fame? Well, the first thing I've considered for about five or six years is not voting, and I've never stopped voting, but the system is broken. And my line, which I've had for a long time, is 525 voters, 525 standards. It's an election where it requires the highest percentage of approval for election of any vote I know of in society. You know, we would never have a president in office if we required 75% approval. Um, and then you take, you take on top of that, um, I think, um, outdated um, regulations, qualifications in how you're to use the vote, uh, guidelines, how you are to vote. And I think it, it just makes it impossible to vote. Now, my own standard is I won't vote for a PED guy if I know he's a PED guy. Uh, so I'm sure I vote for cheats, but they're just good cheats 
not the guys that got caught. And I, that's probably not a perfect standard, but the way I look at it is this. Um, we don't know everything. We can't be expected to know everything, but we can't overlook what we know. And, you know, I, I would like to see the whole process. I would like to see especially, the you know, the Hall of Fame and the Hall of Fame's board of directors come up with a new set of guidelines or, or you know, instruct voters how they want us to look at PED use because now it's left for every voter to come to that conclusion himself and it's it's pretty much impossible. There's no agreement on it. Yeah, and I, I think one of the to me, I mean, people get so passionate about the Hall of Fame and I love the Hall of Fame too, but to me there's the common sense thing to do. I mean, when you talk about the Hall of Fame, what we're essentially talking about is legacy. We're talking about a player's legacy. And with someone like Barry Bonds or Mark McGuire their legacy will always be tied to steroids, whether or not they're in the Hall of Fame or not. I think for the Hall, which is a baseball museum, they should honor the best players. I think that's what the Hall of Fame should be. Some of those best players use steroids, some used amphetamines, some gambled on baseball, some through the World Series. I think they should all be in, but I think the Hall should acknowledge those sins. I think that Barry Bonds should be in the Hall of Fame, but I think the Hall should acknowledge Balco, and I think they should acknowledge his involvement with steroids. I think the same about McGuire. Put it on their plaque, put it on their website to actually make it like this is part of the history of the game. For his era, he was one of the better players, but he also used steroids. I don't see what the problem with that would be. Well, I, I agree with you, and you know we uh, we talk a lot about what the baseball writers should do. I don't believe that's looking at the right place. It's what should the Hall of Fame do? The ba- it's not the baseball writers' Hall of Fame. The baseball writers vote because way back when, I believe in 1936, baseball writers were asked to vote and you know uh, agreed to vote. We received nothing from the Hall of Fame for voting. It's not up to us to change the rules. And, you know, the guidelines in the 1960s, I think you could look down from a press box and you could tell about players and you could, even then though, it was impossible to agree on who was a Hall of Famer and who wasn't, but you didn't have to wonder about the PED question. And I think that has really made it an impossible task. And I think the onus is on the Hall of Fame to change the guidelines. And if they said... Um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna throw a blanket over this era and agree to disagree that we'll never know what happened. Judge guys by their the results they produced, uh, and we'll put we'll include it on a plaque. Um, you know, when a guy was in the Mitchell report or a guy had a positive test, that should I think fix whatever is you know are, are the problems that have led to the ballot glut and uh, the mechanical problems with voting now. And, you know, right now there are five guys I don't vote for because of their ties with PEDs. But if the Hall of Fame, you know, updated those guidelines, I'd vote for those guys tomorrow. But I don't think the Hall of Fame wants to look at that because I think the Hall of Fame, as a board that is governed by Hall of Fame players, uh, Major League Baseball executives, they're the biggest anti-PED crowd you can find. And for right now, the baseball writers, by excluding uh, Bonds, Clemens, et cetera, is doing their dirty work for them. And so I, I don't know. I think we're going to have to have some more years where nobody gets elected uh, before we're going to see the problems addressed. I know the Baseball Writers Association has begun its own discussion about ways to uh, improve the voting process, but I'm not sure that that's the right 
uh, body to be doing this. I think I think as a baseball writer, I think we could ask the Hall of Fame for for help and for a, a, a new look at the qualifications that were given for voting. But as long as it has that clause on the back, integrity, you know, there's sportsmanship, character, integrity. I might be able to overlook sportsmanship and character, but in the, in my lifetime, there's been no bigger assault on the integrity of baseball than there was from PED use in an era when it wasn't regulated by baseball. I can't, I can't get around the integrity clause, but take that off of there, and I'll give those guys my vote tomorrow. I think Bonds and Clemens and McGuire should be in the Hall of Fame, and I think the Hall should acknowledge that they used. We talked about that earlier. But I'm curious what you feel about guys like Mike Piazza and Jeff Bagwell, who there's no evidence that they used. They were never a part of a federal investigation. No teammate ever claimed to have seen them used. No drug dealer has ever claimed to have provided them with steroids. And yet they're not getting in. Their numbers are obviously Hall of Fame worthy, but they're not getting in merely because of suspicion. And if I were Jeff Idelson, the president of the Hall of Fame, I would have a problem with those two guys not getting in more than in the other guys who we know use for sure. Last year, I voted for nine guys, um, and I voted for uh, Bagwell, I voted for Piazza. My own belief is I, I don't trust the eyeball test, but I know a lot of fellow baseball writers believe you could look at a guy and know if he used or he didn't use. You know, I go back to the first player who ever tested positive was a Latin outfielder from the Tampa Bay Rays, Devil Rays at the time. Sanchez, I believe was his last name. But he was the most forgettable baseball player you can imagine. He's five foot nine, hundred and ninety or not, not hundred and seventy-five pounds, scrawny guy. And so, I don't think you can look at a guy and and know he did this, he did that. And I don't trust suspicion. I don't. I don't think. I don't think suspicion is. Um, you know, you, you ever want to make your actions determined by uh, your suspicions. And so I. I do vote for those guys, and that's where I kind of think I may be voting for cheaters, but I voted for the guys who who weren't caught cheating. And for me as a Chicago-based reporter, the the real dilemma for me would have been Sammy Sosa, who was very nearly, very nearly got to the ballot in the same shape, but he he is one of the guys who... Um, the New York Times or Sports Illustrated reported to have a positive test in 2003, the supposedly um, anonymous round of testing. And, you know, that's, that is, to me, why I won't vote for Sammy Sosa. He, you know, he was named. He did not come back and, and clear his name from that report. He didn't file a suit in the court saying it was wrong. Um, so while... I think you could say you didn't need that 2003 test to look at Sammy Sosa and know he was a uh, PED guy. You had, he also had Barry Bonds talking about it in, in reporting that was in the Game of Shadows. But mostly Sammy had been above the fray. But, you know, because he's with 2000, on that 2003 test, I feel like I cannot vote for him. But had he, had he not had that, I would be voting for him along with Piazza and Bagwell and any others that that you want to name that that are on the ballot and and you know yet not you know suspected but not tied to. Let's get into some of the players on the ballot. Sosa included. You of course covered Sosa in Chicago. A couple other players on the ballot with Chicago ties. Greg Maddox. There really shouldn't be any debate there. 
I imagine he'll be getting one of your votes as there'll only be a handful of people that don't vote for him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we're limited to a maximum of 10 votes, which, you know, 10 years ago, you would have never thought you would use the expression limited to a maximum of 10 votes because I, I'm a liberal voter and there are years I voted for five, six, seven guys when other people would vote for two guys. There are guys, you know, that don't get in and I feel strongly about. Alan Trammell is a guy I voted for every year he's been on the ballot. There were years I voted for Davy Concepcion. Um, guys that aren't getting in, but, you know, that they, I, I can't really explain why. You know, it, the difference between Alan Trammell and Ozzie Smith, you know, I, I think I would come down when those guys were in their prime, I think I would have rather had Alan, Alan Trammell as my shortstop than Ozzie Smith. So why one guy the first ballot Hall of Famer and it looks like the other guy, um, you know, is never going to get even close, I can't tell you. Um, so I've only got... I had, last year I voted for nine. That included Dale Murphy, who I got sold on. I had never voted for him before, but I voted for him in his last year on the ballot. So he's off. So there's eight guys that I voted for last year and a pretty darn good crop of first-time guys. So I've not filled in my ballot yet. I know I will vote for Greg Maddox. I think I'll vote for Frank Thomas. I'd like to vote for uh, Glavin. I'm not 100% sure who I'll drop off to put Glavin on. So it's going to be a a difficult process. Well, and I wonder where this is where, like, you almost have to play a game with the ballot, where I think Alan Trammell should be in the Hall of Fame. I I really don't think he's a borderline guy at all. I think he's like a tier two. He should be considered an obvious Hall of Famer. And you mentioned Ozzy Smith. I mean, Barry Larkin went in a few years ago. I look at the difference between Larkin and Trammell. I don't really see one. I think Trammell might even be better. But it's clear at this point that Trammell isn't going to get in by the writers. He's just going to linger on the ballot for the next four or five years. Do you start to say, well, voting for Trammell is almost like a wasted vote at this point? Do you and move on to someone else? Yeah, I have voted even even though you know I wasn't at the maximum of ten. I was always in the high the high level of number of guys you voted for. So I have dropped guys off before as lost causes when new guys came on that I that you know I wanted to vote for, felt I should vote for. You know, Concepcion is an example. I think I dropped him off while he was still on the ballot. Um, I don't like to do it, but and I've never really been forced to do it. But now this time around with uh, the glut of strong candidates, I think you're going to be forced to forced to drop a guy off. I feel so strongly about Trammell. I don't believe I'll drop him off, but it, it's it's an interesting uh, question. I, Larry Walker is a guy I voted for. Probably the fringiest of the uh, the remaining eight I voted for. Uh, so maybe he's the guy that goes so I can vote for, you know, Glavin along with Frank Thomas and Maddox. Yeah, and it's an interesting thing. I, the ballot, obviously, there was the shutout last year. There were 15 players on the ballot this year that have a career wins above replacement. That's baseball references, wins above replacement of 60 or higher. And that doesn't even include Mike Piazza or Sammy Sosa, who fall just below that mark. So obviously, we're looking at the most stacked ballot in history. And I think we're at a point where you may even see voters not vote for Maddox, not only because of that no one has ever got 100% nonsense, but because it's assumed he will get in so obviously that people will want to have other votes that not voting for Maddox essentially gives some voters 11 slots that they can slide another guy in there because they know Maddox will get in. Well, I, I talked to a voter uh, just the other night who I happen to notice there's, you know, the Baseball Writers Association publishes 
if, if a writer wants to have it, agrees to have his vote published, it publishes everybody's vote on their website. And last year, 125 voters had their votes published on the BBWA website. I'm one of them, and I'm glad I did because I went back to refresh myself, my memory of exactly who I voted for last year, and I found um, one colleague of mine you know, who's been covering baseball since the 1980s, Ken Gurnick, who was also with MLB.com at the time, but a longtime Los Angeles writer who voted only only for Jack Morris last year. And uh, I, I talked to him the other day, and, you know, I, I'm not 100% sure if it's thinking, it, it, you know, if, it, if this is his best way to get Jack Morris elected or, you know, exactly where he was going with, with that vote. But I, I don't try to figure out how the overall ballot is going to fall and try to vote accordingly to influence. I think that would be kind of silly when you have 525 voters. Um, you know, I certainly see how you could, you could do that with Maddox. I, I'll be astonished if Greg Maddox doesn't get in this year, but I, before uh, Bill being the Cooperstown researcher, who's been getting some attention in the last few days for saying that Maddox will be the only guy elected I taped an interview with MLB Network last weekend at the winter meetings, and I said I believe Greg Maddox will be the only guy that gets elected. I don't think Morris will will gain the 42 votes he needs, uh, and I don't think Frank Thomas or Glavin will get in on their first ballot because the process is so broken, and it's just the votes are so splintered. Voting is so splintered. Um, So I, I can't imagine Greg Maddox won't get in. There is, I'll admit, a side of me that wouldn't mind seeing everybody be shut out this year to just really hit the Hall of Fame over the head with how screwed up the process is. I I don't think that's going to happen. I think Maddox is going to get in. But if these other guys don't get in, roll forward a year from now, and you have Randy Johnson, John Smoltz, and Pedro Martinez joining joining the panel for voting. Is Randy Johnson a, a... a no-doubt first-ballot Hall of Famer, Smoltz, Martinez. I, I don't think so. And will anybody get in from that panel? Would Frank Thomas or Tom Glavitt in their second year gain enough support, or would the vote just be further splintered? I, I think it's more likely that it, it would just be further splintered. So I think Maddox gets in this year, and I think that kind of is enough to quiet the discussion about the ballot needing an overhaul. Uh, but in January of 2015, I think that's when we're really going to start hearing the screaming and yelling. See, I actually think there's going to be a little more movement. I think there's going to be nine guys that I think four notable guys are going to fall off the ballot. I think four are going to get in, and this is Jack Morris's last year regardless. So I actually think Maddox is a lock. I think Maddox will get somewhere in the 90%. I think Glavin will get in. I think he's going to get somewhere in the 80%. I think Frank Thomas is going to get over that line this year, even though it's going to be much closer than it should be. And I think Biggio will likely squeak in as well. I think for many writers, it's only a crowded ballot if you are willing to admit the PED guys. If you're not, I think there's still room um, to get to 10 and, and include Craig Biggio. And those PED guys are not getting in. None of them, including even guys under just suspicion, Piazza and Bagwell, are not going to get in. But I do think we'd see a class of Maddox, Glavin, Thomas, and Biggio, which would be great and historical. I also think that McGuire, Don Mattingly, Sammy Sosa, and Rafael Palmero are all going to fall off this year. I think those borderline PED guys like McGuire and Sosa and Palmero, who obviously did not have the careers that Bonds or Clemens did, 
if you're not voting for PED guys, with guys coming on the ballot, even guys like Mike Mussina, who I think is very deserving, and Kurt Schilling is a holdover for last year. If you're not voting for PED guys and you want to fill out your ballot, there's no chance those guys are going to get votes. I see all of those guys falling off. And Mattingly, obviously not associated with the PED guy, but he does get votes. I see him dropping too. I see nine guys coming off the ballot this year. Yeah, I um, from a from a real world standpoint and fairness and the, the right result. You know, I, I hope you're right that there are multiple players elected off of this ballot, but I think we, you know the ballot has reached a point where Jack Morris is going to get less support than he did a year ago, and no, there is going to be no sure first timer, you know, outside of outside of Maddox, and I'm not so sure. You know, the guys who vote for Bonds, McGuire, Sosa, those guys are as dug in as you know, as I am in, in thinking Jack Morris is a Hall of Famer and voting for Jack Morris every year he's been on the ballot. Um, I don't know that those guys will change their vote. And, you know, no, no matter how you shake it, voting is just screwed up. And, and I think, you know, we're going to, we're going to get, you know, I would predict we're going to get a wake up call in the very near future this year, that, you know, this year or next that is going to, to really illustrate how screwed up it is. And I hear talk about changing the electorate, that perhaps the baseball writers aren't the best people to to uh, elect it. I think one possibility that could be could be used, the baseball you know, the baseball writers could do a better job of screening who among our members gets votes. Uh, I looked at the one hundred and twenty five ballots that were published on the um, BBWA website, and there were about 25 of those 125 were people I didn't even, I didn't know, or I knew that didn't really cover baseball and still had a vote and, you know, worked around baseball parks regularly. So, you know, in, in from that math, I think the baseball writers, if they did a uh, police who actually had a vote? You could eliminate a hundred voters out of the five twenty-five pretty easily. And but I think if you took those hundred voters that you eliminate, and you gave votes to Bill James and Rob Nyer, Vince Kelly, Tom Brenham, and Pat Hughes, the, the smartest guys in the world who don't have votes and care the most, you know, are the most passionate on the subject. If they replace a hundred people, I'm I'm suggesting you wipe off. I don't know that you get a different result from the election because I think it's the mechanics of the election that are so uh, flawed that produce, you know, and I also think the 75% standard is such a factor in why we have this discussion. And the discussion is always the right discussion. It's, it's the question of which guys aren't in that should be in. I think that's a much better discussion to have than to go back and look at guys that were honored by being in a Hall of Fame and question the worthiness of guys that get elected. I, you know, I think we're at least we're on the right side of the argument. Uh, keeping the Hall of Fame is a very exclusive honor, and you know, I, I think I think it's I think we argue for the right reasons, uh, but we just have to figure out how to handle the PED guys, which you know, in the steroid era, which is I think broken the, the mechanics of voting. 
I agree. I think the system is broken, and I, I think it does need an overhaul. I'd, I'd almost like to see a super committee of 50 people, and it doesn't even have to be 50. Some of those people may be BBWAA members, some may not. You know, I think Bill James should be voting, and John Thorne should be voting. It's sort of ridiculous that the official historian of the game, the man who's charged with representing the history of game, does not have a vote for the Hall of Fame. But I think it should be a super committee that should be, and the BBWA should be removed from the process as a whole, but I do think there are some members that should be a part of it. However, you mentioned the 75 thing a couple of times, and the 75% is interesting because it's a completely fraudulent number in a sense because every single player who has gotten over 50%, with the exception of one, and that's Gil Hodges, every single player who has gotten over 50% has gotten in, whether it be by the writers or by the Veterans Committee. So it's really 50% that you need, and Hodges is an interesting case because Hodges was on the ballot. He was around the 20% mark. Then he won a World Series as a manager, and he jumped up over 50, and then he died, and he jumped over 60. So he had some weird uh, circumstances around his case, but for the most part, when you hit 50%, you get in, and that seems like a much more realistic standard. Yeah, I mean, 75% is arbitrary. Um, I, I like, I mean, one thing that was discussed as recently as last week at a meeting of the baseball writers was asking the Hall of Fame to expand the number of players that can be voted for, um, and also some some discussion, you know, of lowering the standard. I, I would hate to see either happen uh, because, you know, that the Hall of Fame voting, I think, changes radically. If you don't like the way the process is now, wait two or three years and it'll change. Uh, but the changes are, have all been with the Veterans Committee. And I think that has really produced some strange results with the, the different formations of the committee. Um, you know, I think Ron Santo having to wait as long as he did to be elected until after his death, I think, was because uh, that era when Living Hall of Famers largely comprised the Veterans Committee, and those guys didn't elect anyone. And uh, another quirk or two uh, involving Santo. I'd love to see Hodges get in. I think I think as a combination of a manager and a player, I think he's very deserving. I, I wrote a book on the, on Ernie Banks and the 1969 Cubs. Spent a year researching it and and learned a lot about Gil Hodges. The, the job he did as a manager was so ahead of his time. He was a LaRusa or an Earl Weaver in understanding platoon advantages, what he got out of his roster, not wearing players out in an era when most managers just killed the players. I think he was, uh, I think he should be in. Now, whether in like Joe Torrey goes in as a manager and some people point out, you know, he could have gone in as a player, a great playing career. I think Hodges is in that same group, you know, and I, I think he would probably be in as a manager, except he lived a short amount of time. And we've actually seen in the Hall of Fame history that serves candidates well. Kirby Puckett uh, comes to mind. But for whatever reason, Hodges has been overlooked, and, and he's sort of a, a personal favorite of mine that I, I, th- I would like to see the next time he comes up on the Veterans Committee ballot that he would, he would get enough support. Phil, the last thing before I let you go, we already know that three managers are going in with Tony LaRusso, Bobby Cox, and Joe Torre going in with whoever may join them from the players. And I wonder if that's a little fraudulent. And I look at Tony LaRusso and say, is there a manager in baseball that benefited more from PED use, from players using steroids, than Tony LaRusso? Yet he goes right in, but we're penalizing the players. Do you think that's right? Uh, here's a here's an, a different a net example of that. I think you can often point to managers in a similar vein. Uh, to me, Tommy Lasorda 
is is he a Hall of Famer and Fernando Valenzuela isn't? You know, Fernando Valenzuela was so remarkable at what he did, but he didn't do it that well because Lasorda broke him. Um, you know, to me, which of those two guys was clearly exceptional at, at what he did? You know, it wasn't the guy that that has the good the good uh, stick. Uh, it, it it was the guy that had that incredible uh, fastball slider combination changeup. I mean, it was Valenzuela that could could make hitters look foolish. Um, so I, I I get that. Um, you know, I think to to hang the uh, the Oakland A's, the uh, the Bash brothers, uh, and and Mark McGuire, uh, and others that you could name that were uh, you know around Larusa's teams or on Larusa's teams uh, against Larusa, I think would sell short his intellect and his. Uh, managerial intelligence and stubbornness. I mean, I, I'm not sure if it was for the good of the game, but I know it was for the good of all the teams he managed uh, that he kind of, you know, created the one-out reliever, the the five the five reliever inning. I think was created by, um, you know, Tony, and it certainly, uh, you know, was always a, a plus for his teams. The teams he managed. Did as well as they could. I mean, look at look at the, the Cardinal teams that won the World Series with him as a manager. Uh, compare their talent, not just with the teams they played in the World Series, but with the teams that were in the uh, the playoff fields with them. And you know, it, it would seem to me year after year he was, you know, or, or at least on two occasions, he won World Series in St. Louis with teams that would have been seated seventh or eighth if we had a, a true seating in the playoffs. So. I think I think he's a deserving Hall of Famer, and uh, you know it, it's perhaps it should be mentioned on his plaque. I don't know; it's part of his legacy, but I don't think it, it diminishes what he's done as a manager. You've been listening to Phil Rogers. Phil is a national baseball writer for MLB.com and a longtime Hall of Fame voter. You can give Phil a follow on Twitter at Phil G Rogers. Phil, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks for having me on, Ross. I enjoyed it. <laughs> 